Welcome to the Heartbreak to Happiness Show with Sara Davison. If you're struggling with a breakup and you feel shocked, angry, betrayed, devastated, or sad and alone, then this podcast is for you. Best-selling author and award-winning host, Sara Davison, shares how you too can get on with your life to heal, grow, and move from heartbreak to happiness. Here's your host, Sara Davison. Welcome back to the show. And today, my guest is Dr. Jessica Taylor. Jessica is the author of many books, including Why Women Are Blamed for Everything and Sexy But Psycho. She is also a chartered psychologist, researcher, consultant, speaker, and activist. In 2017, Jessica founded Victim Focus, which is a dynamic, flexible, and innovative company with social aims to eradicate victim blaming and to move large systems towards trauma-informed, anti-blaming, anti-oppressive ways of working with humans when they are most in need. So I am super excited to welcome Jessica Taylor to the show. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you for having me super excited I know you've got huge following on social media and lots of people will be super excited that you're a guest on the show today so thank you for joining us please tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do um so my name is Dr Jessica Taylor I am a psychologist and I am the director of Victim Focus um I specialize in the psychology of you know, women's trauma, women's blame, so self-blame and victim blaming, uh, women's sort of experiences of being subjected to all different forms of male violence as well. And Victim Focus works all over the world to challenge the way that women and girls are perceived when they're subjected to male violence. Um, so that means that we are feminist, trauma-informed, anti-pathologization, and we're woman-centered. Love it. So for some of my listeners, they might not be sure what victim blaming means. Can you explain that in a bit more detail? Yeah, so um, it's this really common process found all over the world that positions the victim of that particular crime as the problem, as the cause and the solution that, you know, it's their fault or they should have taken more responsibility, that they caused the crime to happen to them, they precipitated it in some way. And victim blaming tends to be split into um, different um, t- types of victim blaming. So the first type is behavioral blame. So behavioral victim blaming is where you um, attack the behavior of the victim. Um, pretty straightforward, you know, sort of why did she get in a taxi? Why is she on dating apps? Why does she do this? Why did she go there? Why is she wearing that? Um, whereas um, the second form of victim blaming is characterological blame, which is the attack on character. So the next stage of victim blaming after behavioral blame tends to be characterological blame. So she's stupid. She's naive. She's promiscuous. She's risk taking. She's not resilient enough. She's too vulnerable. She's got low self-esteem. So you have a lot of um, um, a lot of characterological victim blaming, even in services that claim to help women especially those that claim that these things happen to women because they have low self-esteem and low confidence, which a lot of people don't recognize as a form of victim blaming. And the third form of victim blaming that we tend to um, see is situational victim blaming, which is where um, it'll be like the situation's fault. Like, oh, well, if you go to hotels like that, what did you expect was going to happen? Or like, if you go back to his house, 
that was of course going to happen to you almost like the situation is what preempts it um so victim blame is extremely common um as a woman you are very very likely to have been blamed by someone for abuse or for things that have been done to you uh, not only that, but you're very likely to blame yourself. We live in a society that encourages the victim blaming of women and girls, and it encourages our self-blame. It's so true. And you say that all the time. And actually, I hear that in my coaching clinic. Well, maybe it was my fault. And actually, you know, obviously when you're outside of it or you, you understand what's going on, it's very clear that it wasn't their fault. But I think just hearing from someone it's not your fault can be very reassuring. So, you know, when... Do you find that this stops people from reporting abuse or, or mentioning it to people? Yeah, um, we know that self-blame and victim blaming means that women and girls don't even acknowledge necessarily that a crime has been committed against them because they feel like they preempted it, that they brought it upon themselves, right? So therefore, why would they report anything? Um, so we know that every single year, the reporting rates of these forms of abuse against women and girls have been going down. Like... Um, even as, as little as five to six years ago, around 20% of women and girls would report to the police. We're now at 11%. So this has been going down every single year. Sometimes you'll see in the media and it'll say, oh, reports have gone up. There's more confidence in police. So that's not true. Um, so the crime survey in Wales um, has shown every year a drop in confidence in reporting. But some of it will be blame. Some of it's stigma. Some of it is the fact that Research has shown that women and girls are actually very good at preempting the victim blaming against them. So even if they want to report, they'll often think, but what if they say this? Or what if they question this? Or what if they check my phone? Or what if they ask if I'd been drinking? What if they find out that I reported years ago and retracted? What if they find out I have mental health issues? What if they check my medical records? So a lot of women and girls uh, learn to preempt the fact that they'll probably be blamed and then they choose not to report to protect themselves. You do say how you really feel so then you shut down and you don't say it at all which is crazy mm. that the same thing would happen if you were to report it also you know the realization that you're in an abusive relationship can be a real shock can't it when people start to realize and spot the signs it can take a long time for people to realize and sometimes they don't realize whilst they're in it is this something that you come across yeah, so um, acknowledgement, it, well, in psychology, it's called acknowledgement, but it essentially means that um, when we ask women and girls, like, have you ever been raped? Have you ever been subjected to abuse? You know, things like that. They'll generally say no, even if they have. And that's partially because they don't recognize themselves in those words. Loads of women have been forced to have sex they didn't want, or they've been touched in a way they didn't like. They've been assaulted. They've been raped but they won't, they won't necessarily acknowledge that it's those words. So you'll sometimes work with women and they'll say, um, no, it wasn't a rape rape. It was, it was just like, you know, he, may, he, he did, you know, ignore me when I said no, and he made me feel guilty until I gave in. Um, but it wasn't a rape. And so like, because of that, uh, and because of the stereotypes around sexual assault, domestic abuse, and sexual violence, there are literally probably hundreds of thousands of women out there that have been subjected to these things but they don't acknowledge it and the reason they don't acknowledge it is a mixture of things like some of it will be because they don't feel they fit the stereotype of that they or that the crime didn't fit the stereotype but in some cases it'll be they're not ready they're not ready to acknowledge that yet it, it's they they're still um they love the perpetrator and that's something that you know people don't talk about very often is that you know even when you're being 
abused and severely harmed you can still actually love the person who's doing that to you and it's very difficult to get to a place in that relationship or decades after that relationship to be like yeah no that was abuse like I can't like I, that that person was an abuser sometimes you know that acknowledgement process can take a very very long time and that it hurts it hurts to have to mentally reframe somebody as an abuser who was choosing making active choices to harm you over and over again rather than just you know oh it was it wasn't a great relationship it is very difficult when you start to realize that the relationship wasn't a healthy one I can see with my clients and from my own personal experience that as you start to realize that it's quite embarrassing it's humiliating you feel a bit of an idiot are these normal symptoms that you see from people as they go through that journey? And what are the consequences of that? Sometimes it can just be too overwhelming. Yeah, um, I think they're all completely normal responses to trauma, to be honest with you. I think that once you, the, the process of acknowledgement is often quite traumatic in that um, there is some research that suggests that women who continue to blame themselves and never acknowledge that they've been raped or abused will actually have less trauma responses than the women that go through the acknowledgement process and then get to the point where they realize it's happened because the process itself is traumatic, realizing that you are actually a victim of abuse, that you have been raped or you have been beaten up or you have been assaulted or you have been manipulated, you have been lied to. You know, they're massive hurdles. So as you're doing that, you become more and more traumatized. So, you know, like you said, you'll get those trauma responses like, feeling humiliated feeling embarrassed feeling angry because one of the things you get with acknowledgement is anger so it's very common to feel um just absolutely enraged by the fact that you realize that you were actually abused um similarly it's very common to feel really sad really upset that you were stuck in that feeling like you said embarrassed ashamed you know they're really common responses do you think there is still a stigma around abuse and being a victim of abuse in society today? Yeah, definitely. I, um, I, I genuinely don't subscribe to the belief that, um, you know, that there's no stigma and that, um, that there's like um, these huge support systems and that society's moved on. I don't think we've made any progress, to be honest with you. Um, I think we talk more. You know, me and you were talking like lots of like women are doing these types of, you know, discussions and awareness raising, training, speaking, all sorts of resources and support services uh, have been set up. But um, wider in society in general, uh, the stigma is still there. And the stigma is partially because um, nobody actually believes male violence is this common. Nobody, nobody actually believes women when they say that this is how they're treated them or this is how that they were abused one of the first reactions is disbelief of women and girls and you know a belief that women exaggerate and that it's said for revenge or it's said um, maliciously um, and things like that and you know women and girls have to contend with that so I think the stigma actually sits more with victims than it does with perpetrators I actually don't think there's any stigma around being a perpetrator of abuse I don't see how it impacts them Whereas, you know, you know, you're saying that I completely agree. I hadn't thought about it that way, but yeah, I, there isn't. And I think, you know, for, for in my role as the divorce coach, I see obviously a lot of people going through the family courts. And um, one of the things that lawyers have said for many, many years now to, to many of my clients is 
don't mention the abuse because you're going to come yeah. across bitter and twisted and it will count yes. against you. In fact, if you do that, you endanger yourself for ending up in an even worse situation in lots of different ways. Yeah, I agree. I hear that a lot. Um, a lot of women write to me about things like this and, and um, I've spoken to lawyers about this as well. And at the end of the day, um, that's because the, you know, the family courts in particular are misogynistic and have been for a long time. They are very much, um, I don't, you know, I'm really sick to death of people saying that it's, oh, they're on the mum's side and they always side with the woman. I, I not, I've never seen that. Like in actual fact, what you're most likely to see, as you, as you say, is that if she talks about abuse, she'll be told she's delusional or that she's lying and it's malicious. If she tries to protect her children from an abuser, it will often um, spiral into accusations of parental alienation and that she's making it up in order to alienate the children from him. Um, it's very common that whenever women bring up the fact that men are abusive or dangerous, um, psychiatric or psychological reports will be ordered to be done on them as if the woman is the problem and that she's making it up and that they then use the psychological reports um, to frame them as delusional. Yeah, exactly. I see this all the time, which is really terrifying because a lot of people go to court thinking they're going to get justice, like the family courts, you know, and the justice system. And what I've seen time and time again, and I think a lot of people don't realise that it's not just in the UK because, you know, I've interviewed psychiatrists in Australia, people all over the world, America, Africa, everywhere. I mean, people are saying this is just right. It is exactly the way the system is at the moment. And it's a, a global issue rather than, you know, just a, a UK issue. It's international. That's because misogyny is global. So obviously, if you set systems up, the system is inherently misogynistic in the same way that so the exact same way structural racism works that you know the systems are inherently racist because society is inherently racist so you know it, it's it's exactly the same way that the, the discrimination and oppression works in these cases you know society in general is misogynistic and seeks to silence and oppress women so of course in a court environment whether that's criminal or family you'll see a microcosm of what you see outside and also I've seen a, a, a lot of clients who've been worried about their own mental health. And like you said, being put forward for, you know, being analysed by different therapists, ologists, psychiatrists, analysts, you name it. A whole team of people looking at them, nobody looking at who the person who they're saying is the perpetrator. And, you know, that, that makes them feel like they're going crazy. It's like when you walk into that family court system, is it everyone is looking at me as if I've done something wrong? and accusing me of different things so am I going mad do you hear that well yeah absolutely I mean I, I come at it from probably a stronger angle than that which is that I don't believe that depression or anxiety exists um, I don't think that any mental health issues exist um, and the most important thing for like those of that you know some of the women that might be listening and shocked at that perspective is that um in the vast majority, if not all cases, um, especially where women and girls have been diagnosed as usually distress, trauma, poverty, oppression, there's something happening, bullying, you know, work stress, something like they've just had a baby or their partner is abusive or they've had to leave a relationship or their mum is ill. Like 
it doesn't take a lot of work to um, look at the contextual factors around somebody's life to start to understand that they're actually not mentally ill at all and that their reactions are completely normal. Um, the other thing that we've done is we've pathologized normal words. So anxiety has been completely pathologized, despite the fact that anxiety is completely normal. And, you know, to the point where people believe, they'll say things like, oh, it's my anxiety or my anxiety is really playing up. And what they mean is I'm scared because anxiety is just a fear. There's nothing, you know, there's nothing um, like wrong with fear. <laughs> you know, it's not a form of illness to be scared of things. And if you've been subjected to abuse, you're very likely to live in fear that's normal that's not a mental illness like and after you've been subjected to abuse you are very likely to find yourself very low really struggling not sleeping not eating not you know like just feeling like you've got no purpose you feel helpless and powerless that's completely normal they're all normal trauma responses that doesn't constitute a psychiatric diagnosis so and the same with everything else really so I come at it from the perspective that I'm completely trauma informed I I don't believe that these issues reside in the brain i think they reside in the environment that you know in all the cases that i've ever worked on in 12 years it literally takes five minutes to figure out what's going on if you just ask the right questions so refreshing jessica i mean it's exactly what i've been seeing you know i'm thinking gosh if you i've been through that that's how i would be reacting i don't think there's anything wrong with you i think that's your body's normal way of protecting you and it's a coping strategy to keep you going so yeah. oh my goodness so why are you one of the very few people and therapists that believe that why is there this sort of rush to diagnose somebody and then that act against them quite often when they're talking about maybe child custody cases and things like that. So I've been writing about this a lot and that's what's in the new book. You know, I've been trying to explore why we do that to women and girls. And we have been doing that for, you know, about 2000 years. You know, you can go back really far. Um, we have always perceived women to be problematic. We've always perceived them uh, to be inferior. And, you know, one of the oldest roots of this belief of, of diagnosing women actually comes from like you know over a thousand years ago which was the belief that women's minds and brains were it wasn't just our bodies like everyone talks about how sexism comes from the fact that women are seen as the weaker sex like physically weaker i.e smaller and stuff like that but it wasn't just that it was always that men sought to position us as stupid and as incapable and as less logical more emotional and that we couldn't be trusted and that we're more likely to be crazy. And at the time, that's what they would say. They would say that we were insane or crazy or mad. Are you struggling to cope with your breakup or divorce? Are you feeling devastated, heartbroken, sad and anxious? If so, please know that you are not alone and there is help available. Sarah Davison, best known as the Divorce Coach, and her team of accredited coaches are here to offer you the support and guidance you need to navigate all areas of your breakup, take back your control, and start feeling happy again. Sarah will show you how to dial down those controlling negative emotions, unhook from your ex, get back in the driving seat of your life, and design a future you are excited to live. Sarah has a range of solutions to support any breakup, 
including free guides, one-to-one coaching, her Heartbreak to Happiness virtual retreats, live retreats, and you can even train to be a breakup and divorce coach with Sarah too. Visit www.saradavison.com today and start to feel happy again. And at the time, that's what they would say. They would say that we were insane or crazy or mad. Or if it was a religious uh, perspective, it was possessed. It was a possession. So if women didn't conform, if they spoke too loudly, if they you know, had too many opinions, if they were assertive or gender nonconforming or were gay or <laughs> didn't want to get married or didn't want to have babies or like anything like that where you did not the stereotype it was very common for you to end up diagnosed with something and locked up somewhere or killed like obviously because um you know some of your listeners will probably already uh, know this but you know um the majority of women who were burned and hanged as witches were as you know they were gender non-conforming or they were intelligent or political they could read and write which was very rare so um, it was one of the quickest ways to get rid of them, right? And that's the same now. It's one of the quickest ways to get rid of you. You know, that you are mentally ill, that you are, you are disordered in some way. So, you know, we have a very dominant, very powerful um, global narrative that mental illness is a you know, brain chemical imbalance and that you are, it's a genetic uh, predisposition and that, you become mentally ill and then you require treatment and that the diagnosis is for you is with you for the rest of your life um and you know in the like in the new book uh, i've argued that that's deliberate i actually i actually see that as deliberate i think the whole process is deliberate well tell us a bit more about that book what's it called and where can we get it um so the new one is called sexy but psycho um and it is on pre-order now so it comes out next spring but it's on pre-order so you can get it on like amazon and you know bookshops and stuff you can just pre-order it on hardback um and you can get it at victim focus which is our store we're the only ones selling the personalized and signed hardback first editions i'm actually quite nervous about it coming out (laughs) because um i just know that it's going to just cause absolute chaos but i think it needs to be said i think that we have an entire culture of you know pathologizing women and girls i think we've been doing that on purpose for a long time and it's been very successful i think part of the success of what you've done and the fact that you've got so many people that are cheering you on from the sidelines like me and a lot of my listeners i know for sure is that you speak your mind and you you aren't afraid to challenge because a lot of victims of abuse are too scared to speak out or they if you've been through the family courts not allowed to speak out which again, I find extremely difficult, but you know, you're, you're cornered, you know, and you're not allowed to. So it's very refreshing. And and I think it gives a lot of hope to a lot of people to see, you know, a strong woman standing up and speaking out and, you know, being controversial, uh, but that encourages debate. It puts it out there and people are going to be talking about it, which is what we want. Right. Yeah. I try, um, you know, in everything that I do to, um, encourage critical thinking I don't think there's enough critical thinking going on in any of these topics I think that we are doing the same old shit over and over again and then we're just sort of wondering why it's not working and why we're not getting any change and I have a 
I have a tendency sometimes, I guess, to go right back to the basics of things and try and figure out where they went wrong and then take them apart from there. Absolutely makes people very uncomfortable, um, you know, in lots of situations. But I do think that if we want radical systemic change, we have to look at some of our belief systems and where they came from in the first place and how we allowed them to continue without any criticism and you know that follow you and listen to you and the experiences they're going through especially with divorce and with family proceedings and things like that that entire system is flawed you know that's why there's so much call for a systematic review and uh, things like that into those proceedings and into those courts that it should be more transparent that we should be you know we should be able to appeal and review things and stuff like that it disgusts me the the cases and the files that I get sent sometimes for a family court the things that are written about women dodgy psychometrics that have been used against them um psychological assessment that read like they're just an opinion and the women can't fight them um you know perpetrators deliberately suggesting to the courts that their exes are crazy or delusional or borderline and then the judge is just taking that as if that's fact um, it's just a it's a very dangerous place to be and it's honestly like from a personal perspective it's somewhere that I've avoided twice like in my life I've twice avoided family court at, at all costs and sometimes at great cost to me I'm very aware of how that system works and I have twice done everything I can to stay out of a family it's very difficult to try and do that but you know sometimes you can get dragged in without knowing it but I mean it's very good advice if you can stay out of the system because I think a lot of people naively go in thinking that you know that it, you're yeah, get that it'll be fair. yeah yeah I, I honestly couldn't agree more I think that um, most of the women that I've ever known that have gone into that system genuinely believed that they would be able to show their evidence and um, engage in a process that they thought was going to be evidence-based that was going to be fact-based that it was going to be fair uh, and then often a few months in find they're in a system that's not listening to them couldn't give a shit about their evidence and you know their children are being ignored they're being ignored and they can't figure out what's happening they can't figure out how it went so drastically wrong that's because the entire system's set up against them so you know we are definitely misled into going down that route as if that is the safest and fairest route to go but it, i think it's actually the most dangerous just yeah I mean what changes need to be made to get these changes so that women do have a fair chance and that domestic abuse is recognized I know right now for example there is no compulsory domestic abuse training for legal professionals which I personally find horrifying and just shocking and how does that even make any sense but you know that is how it is you know what changes would you like to see or do you think are much needed um I actually sometimes I think there's an over-reliance on training I think that training is what people think is the answer but if you actually look at professions that have loads of training their attitudes aren't any better that's because training often isn't the answer it's because um when a belief system so let's let's suggest like misogyny for example you know misogyny is so culturally accepted and embedded that you can't you can't undo it with one day of training you know um you could try but it won't work and that's because the people who believe those things will sit listen to you and dismiss everything you've said and then we'll go back to whatever their belief system was beforehand um i often think in in a similar way that um you know it would be stupid of us for example to put um i don't know somebody who held 
horrific, oppressive, racist beliefs onto a one-day E&D course and hope that they weren't a racist at the end of it. I don't understand why people think that that would work in, in these situations. And um, I know that people want to believe that, for example, in the example you gave, like training uh, the solicitors and lawyers in domestic abuse would make them more, I don't know, aware or have higher empathy or would understand more. Um, but you'll probably find that their attitudes are based on their own personal beliefs and their value systems and the fact um, that they will hold a level of confirmation bias, which is that they keep taking and keep seeing more and more cases where women get proven to be mentally ill and, you know, that the man wins. And then over a period of time, they'll believe that that is what's happening, that most women are mentally ill and that. So. Training is good, but it's not the answer. The, um, the answer has to be um, a much more complicated, broader, and um, a lot more difficult systemic change globally and culturally. And that means challenging everything from education, media, law, health, mental health systems, you know, like policing, social care, like that we have to explore the biases that we hold against women and girls right from the you know right from like nursery school um I don't know about you know you but I mean my kids changed loads when they went to nursery school and they came out with views that I definitely didn't teach them and suddenly they were in an environment where other grown-ups were teaching them sexist values misogynistic values that I had never said in front of them and you know they were coming home and being like um girls can't play football or like girls are you know girls are stupid or like boys are you know only boys play with tractors or like and I was just like whoa (laughs) like I've just spent years making sure that you didn't believe those things and then you've been there two weeks now you're coming out with this like and I have to undo it all now and the, you know you you can't underestimate how damaging an environment is if it holds those views because like I genuinely mean that one of my kids was in school for less than I would say a month when they started coming out with these things and I was like what the hell like I felt like how did that happen um and then the more you know parents that I've spoken to over the years they they believe the exact same thing that you know their views their weird sort of misogynistic gender role sort of views their racist views their homophobic views would often come from other children other adults family members and a broader culture um and you you kind of have to like stay on top of that all the time to try and challenge any of it and like our kids are you know 13 and 10 now and we're still doing it like still having to challenge it's so hard so if you even take those tiny examples but on this massive stage this massive massive scale we have to approach this as a human race that we have a very serious global issue with how much we hate women and girls and that means looking at how for example you know the family courts hold that up how the criminal courts hold that up how education holds that up how the mental health system holds that up how social care holds that up because when you start looking at it like that you see that it's absolutely everywhere um and we have to then start changing things uh, and challenging them. I think we need to audit services more. We need to point out their misogyny. There needs to be 
you know, more control over things like that. I also believe that there should be a lot more um, like right to review around things, you know, when or like second opinion type stuff that, for example, for, you know, just as a basic, if a woman gets a psychological assessment done in a court and it's just absolute bollocks, why is she not? Why can't she just be like, right, well, I want another completely different kind of psychologist to do this to see whether they come out with the same outcome. And I know from reading those assessments that there's no way I would have come to those conclusions that from the same information, you know. So, like, what's up with that? Why is there no, like, right to review and right to appeal in these cases? And why are people allowed to, especially in family court, because it's so much more lax because of the evidence threshold being so different, you know, you can literally just accuse them of anything and then women end up on the back foot having to defend that for years sometimes, the, the things that have never even occurred. Um, I, w- I worked with one woman recently who um, was abused and raped and her child was from the rape and the, the perpetrator had been arrested and he'd been charged. I think he actually was prosecuted. And then in family court several years later when he was trying to get access to that baby, he just claimed randomly in court that she'd stabbed him they had never happened he'd never been stabbed he'd never reported it to the police like there was no evidence of this stabbing ever and I was speaking to her recently and she said that is this been going on three years she's still trying to defend herself that she didn't stab him I, I it's he literally just made it up on the spot and yet the fact that he's actually been prosecuted for rape and that the baby exists because of you know like all of that is being ignored everyone just keeps bringing up the fact that she's violent because she allegedly stabbed him like why is she what like how does that system get so broken that everything about him is being ignored but he made up one thing about her and nobody will shut up about it it's amazing so much jessica i mean i can't tell you how refreshing it is to hear this because it is exactly true this is what is happening in the family courts and people just don't know what goes on because it's all behind closed doors I think you picked up there about you know experts and reports and not being able to get a second opinion I mean I think fundamentally the way that experts are chosen with very little vetting if any um, and anyone can really sign up to be an expert and you know, their, you know, like you said, their opinion is given so much weight when there's not a proper, thorough vetting process. And, and that means not being biased. You think you go to court, your experts are not going to have a bias. Now, when you look at the cases that I see, there's a lot of bias coming through from, from reports that are done by so-called experts in fields. They're clearly biased. Yeah, I think not only are they biased, but I've read some things that, like, they verge on just personal rants like some like um psychological assessments I've read somewhere um they come across like they hate that woman and and you think how have you written this as a professional um you know uh, some of them I actually find insulting and I'm not even the woman in the assessment like so I, I read them and I just think these come across as a string of personal insults about this woman, not really even an assessment necessarily, sort of suggesting that she's delusional, over-emotional, deceptive, that she's problematic, that she's malicious, that she's vengeful. And I'm like, whoa, sorry, where is your evidence for this? You met her for an hour for an assessment? Like, you know, and yeah, so absolutely. The whole thing disgusts me. The whole system is disgusting and terrifying, frankly. 
So, wow. I mean, this has been a fascinating conversation. I know lots of my listeners will be, you know, finding like this a lot of resonance to what you're saying because, oh my goodness, you're hitting all the spots for so many of my listeners. I just know that. So tell me, where can we find out more about you and what you're doing? Um, well, I have social media like on everything pretty much. So I have Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn and Instagram and TikTok, um, which is a full time job in itself, frankly. Um, and then um, obviously the website has loads of information and free resources and all sorts of in- interesting stuff, which is victimfocus.org.uk. Um, we also have our store on there where you can buy like my books and journals and, you know, resources and stuff with lots of free research. So you can read lots of my stuff for free anyway, which is under resources for professionals on the website. Um, there's the blog victimfocusblog.com, which has got all of my, um, just like just blogs similar to these topics if you've enjoyed this podcast you'll enjoy the blog basically it has 2.4 million readers on the blog which is terrifying I didn't find that out until the other day because I'd not looked at my stats for like over a year which was stupid that's crazy it just shows what amazing work you're doing Jessica that people you know want this stuff need this stuff and this you know maybe considered alternative to a lot of people's point of view is actually much much needed right now today yeah I actually find it terrifying that anybody thinks that the things that I'm saying are alternative or like controversial because I think that a lot of what I say purely comes from a place of um just like basic human compassion for for victims of uh, male violence and that um the belief that they're not actually mentally ill and that we should probably support them and that they require some space to process it and that we should believe them and we should be there for them and that that will take some time the the core of what i'm saying i actually don't think is that radical and it's the reason that i find that terrifying to be honest with you is because if that's radical that just goes to show how fucked up society is if you know if if that's so radical that we should support victims and believe them and protect them from further oppression that is a red flag for a very dangerous society (laughs) absolutely with you well thank you so much i have one final question that i ask all my guests so my podcast is called heartbreak to happiness and i think it's really important to know what happiness is for you because when you're going through these journeys and all the different scenarios we've talked about just having something in your life that brings a level of joy is so important so Jessica, what is happiness for you? That's a really good question because I wouldn't have been able to answer this a couple of years ago or a few years ago because I don't think that I actually was happy until a couple, like a few years ago. I don't think I ever felt what happiness was until a few years ago, actually, which is a very strange thing to say. Um, I think happiness is authenticity, that you can genuinely be yourself and that you're not ashamed of that in any way and that you... Um, and that you have a level of empowerment that you know who you are like that for me personally makes me really happy that I know exactly who I am and that I you know I'm not hiding any parts of myself from myself and that um, I can be who I am without being scared Um, and you know I also think that being happy is about um, being able to see your own strengths and understand what you bring to the world and who, and to the people around you. Um, uh, for me, like the basic stuff is like, I know to be more practical about this answer is like reading and learning and music and cooking and being outside in the sun and just 
things like that. But yeah, I think that um, for me, definitely one of the most powerful things um, around me finding my happiness and who I am is is being completely authentic and the there not being any more parts of myself that I don't fully understand anymore, which has taken some time. Like I'm 30. For some people, they would say that was quite early, but like I got to about 28 and had done all the work that I needed to do to the point where there's nothing left in myself that I've not figured out and explored. And then that's put me in a really confident position. I think it's one of the reasons why I can do a lot of what I can do. Um, and it's made me really, really happy. Um, I would honestly say to women listening, uh, especially if you're going through breakup or you've come out of abuse or you're going through stuff, is um, do not attempt to seek happiness in, a, in another person because you won't find it. You have to find it. You have to find out who you are and you have to find yourself. You have to understand yourself and you and then be exactly who you are in exactly the way that you are that person and that I, I truly believe that that's the only time that you'll that you can truly be empowered and that if you go looking for happiness in other people it'll only ever be temporary it'll wear off eventually um you know so go and find yourself and figure out who you are um I think that's one of the most important things that you can do is is to find out truly who you are and why you're here and what is what it is you're going to do with your time I love that answer. Wow. I mean, being authentic, I agree, is when you, you know, you're so comfortable in your own skin, you allow your own light to shine and you're not worrying anymore about what you're saying or what people are thinking. Absolutely. Well, yeah. thank you so much, Jessica, for being a guest on my show. You have been absolutely fabulous. And I know you will have helped so, so, so many of my listeners from everything that you shared today. So thank you so much for joining me. That's all right. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for today's episode. Do head on over to follow Jess at at Dr. Jess Taylor on Twitter or check out the Victim Focus website for more information. And I look forward to you joining me on my next episode. That's it for today's episode of Heartbreak to Happiness. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review to win a free ticket to one of Sarah's virtual retreats. The retreats are a transformative combination of live webinars with Sara herself, coupled with empowering online video programs designed to help you cope better with your breakup and start feeling happy again. For more details, head on over to heartbreaktohappinesspodcast.com, where you can also get a copy of Sara's free gift. Thank you and join us again on the next episode for another dose of Heartbreak to Happiness. Heartbreak to Happiness.